0: May 31st, 1963, or maybe 9 months prior to that or thereabouts. See see the beginnings of things are important and they usually mark something new is happening and you might have a birthday or an anniversary or some other event around a beginning. And when we think of Jesus's beginning, we out of habit we just immediately turn to Luke and Matthew and we begin to read the Birth narratives, Matthew chapter 1, as as Sam read, this is how the birth of Jesus Christ came about. His mother was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be with child through the Holy Spirit. Or Luke chapter 2, Joseph went to Bethlehem to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn a son, but you notice when you read through the the gospel narrative of uh, John, he doesn't include uh, the birth of Christ. He has a different starting point. You might think of uh, Matthew and Luke being filmed like Steven Spielberg might film uh, the beginning of Jesus. Steven Spielberg likes to put the camera. On the ground. So you're sort of running alongside the action. You're, you, you, when you watch his movies, it's as if you're in the action. You're in the movie. Uh, but John takes a different take. He, he takes the camera and, and he lifts it to this enormously high altitude. He's, he's shooting the scene, so to speak, from above. And he's not, he's not just shooting from 10,000 feet and he's not shooting from 30,000 feet. He's actually pulling the camera back. So far that he he steps outside of time and he begins to film from that particular angle. And we see that angle in these two passages that we've read from John. We see this angle of Jesus' beginning in John chapter 1 and in John chapter 8. John chapter 1. John begins his gospel with a purpose. He doesn't want anybody to be confused as he gets into the story of Jesus. He wants you to know right in the beginning who he has concluded Jesus to be. And so he tells you in these opening verses, before he tells you anything about a wedding or going to a woman at a well or going to a feast, He tells you or he begins his gospel by locating Jesus in relationship to time, which is outside of time. When you see the gospel of John and you see the opening words in the beginning, he's he's a Jewish man and he's writing to Jewish people. And they would immediately and most of you would immediately say, "Okay, I'm familiar with this language in the beginning. I'm going to race back to Genesis Chapter one, verse one, where the Moses opens in the beginning, God. And so you immediately begin to make this connection, John saying in the beginning, and then I'm going to start telling you about Jesus. So you you begin to see what he's talking about. If you read through Genesis, you understand that before there was a beginning, there was God. But then you come here to John chapter one and you see something that's absolutely mind blowing. And that is this remarkable statement about Jesus, and that is that Jesus was God, and Jesus was with God he He's the creator of the universe he His beginning started before the beginning he He has no beginning he's eternal. I don't know if you're familiar with acute mountain sickness, acute mountain sickness. you're probably familiar with it as Altitude sickness, you probably heard of that. And, and if you know anything about it, what happens is if you're at sea level, there's a percentage of oxygen in, in this room right now. And typically it's about 21% of what's in this atmosphere is oxygen, and that's enough for us to breathe pretty easily. But as you go up, that oxygen percentage begins to drop. It stays about the same until 8,000 feet. So a mile is 5,200 and what? Something. I've got two or three different answers. But, okay, you it's over 5,000 feet. So you get a mile up in the air, it's still pretty much the same. The percentage is pretty much the same. You get to 8,000 feet in the air, it starts to drop. You get to 12,000 feet in the air, you have 40% of the oxygen left. And that's why when you get up there, you call it, I'm up in thin air. Because I, I, can't, I, I feel like I, I need to breathe twice just to get one amount of breath in. And that's what we call uh, thin air or this acute mountain sickness. When you get up into that area, you become dizzy, you become fatigued, you can get a headache. And in order to avoid these symptoms, uh, they say you need to go up slowly. You go up a few thousand feet, you spend some time there, then you go up a few more thousand feet. But if you fly from Wilmington to some 12,000 foot peak and you step off the plane, you're in trouble because you haven't had time to adjust. You haven't had a chance to acclimate. And when we open here in John's gospel, he gives us no chance to acclimate. He immediately takes you to this hugely high altitude. You have have no way to catch your breath. When you read through these 18 verses, you just get dizzy thinking about all the things that John is telling you about Jesus. They're they're so far up. They're so far away from our perspective. It's hard for us to even imagine Jesus' beginning being before time began. But then thankfully, John says, OK, I understand that I have brought you to this really high altitude. Verse 19 crash back down. Let's let's get back down to sea level and I'll begin to tell you slowly who Jesus is again. So he starts you up high. You just get dizzy thinking about Jesus being God and being with God. That concept itself begins to make your head spin. And then he says, OK, let's just talk about Jesus at a wedding. Let's talk about Jesus with a woman at the well. Let's talk about Jesus on a lakeside, Jesus teaching in the temple. And he begins to bring you up slowly back up into this thin air. In the thin air, we reach again in John chapter 8. There's been this long discussion in the previous verses between Jesus and the Jewish people about the, their ancestry. And it sort of gets to this point where the people in the crowd, they're in the temple area. These people say, Jesus, we've just been home doing our homework on Ancestry.com. We know our family tree. And they all say, we go back to Abraham. That's where we start. That's, he's our father. And then Jesus makes this very impressive statement. They're, they're saying to Jesus, Jesus, you don't understand. You should be impressed that, that we're connected to Abraham. And Jesus says, hey, you want to be impressed? <laughs> How about before Abraham? How about that? He, he's, he gives the topper of all statements here in these end, ending verses. Well, your father Abraham, he rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it. And he was glad. Now, when you read through the commentaries, there's a lot of speculation over what Jesus was really referring to. Referring to. When is it that Abraham saw Jesus' day? Nobody's really sure. There the commentators give you lots of different ways to think about that. Genesis chapter 12, maybe when when God calls Abraham and he says to Abraham, I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you, I will curse and all people on the Earth will be blessed through you. Maybe there was something in that conversation that he could see that there was a blessing that was going to come from Abraham, and it was going to be the Messiah, or Genesis 15. Remember that uh, Abraham had made this covenant between God and Abraham? The sun had set, and darkness had fallen, and a smoking firepot with a blazing torch appeared and passed between these animal pieces making a covenant and on that day the lord made a covenant with abraham maybe in that conversation that's not recorded abraham understood that hey he couldn't walk that path and he knew someone else on his side was going to have to walk that path and he could see that that was going to be the messiah or possibly genesis 22 when abraham takes his son for a sacrifice, Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and placed it on his son, Isaac. He takes the wood, he places it on Isaac's shoulder so that Isaac would have to carry it up a hill. And he himself carried, Abraham carried the fire, Abraham carried the knife. As the two of them went on together, Isaac spoke up and said, or asked his father, Father the fire and the wood are here, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? And Abraham responds, God himself will provide a lamb. It may be in this context that Abraham can see something, and he saw Jesus' day and was glad. Whatever the reference is, and maybe it's even another one, Abraham's ancestors are responding to Jesus' comment to say, Abraham saw my day and was glad. They come right back in Jesus to Jesus and say, what are you talking about? I mean, are you out of your mind? Nobody even speaks the kind of language that you speak. I mean, you're not even 50 years old. We're not sure how long ago Abraham lived, but it was at least 2,000 years ago. So there's no way you could have somehow had some days that crossed over with Abraham. That's impossible. You're, You're out of your mind. And then we come to this climax, verse 58. This is where we get back up into the very thin air. And Jesus himself tells us about his beginning. And he says before Abraham... But before the person you're connected to, before 2,000 years ago, he says, I am. So you know what they're thinking. You know what they're thinking because of their reaction in verse 59. You know what they're thinking because we just read Exodus chapter 3. Everybody on the scene understands what Jesus has just said. He, he's basically saying, look, I'm God and, and everybody understands that when Moses came to, to, to this burning bush, he was nervous and in, in his nervousness, he says, look, I'm going to go say God sent me. Can you give me a name? And God says, well, I am. I don't have a name. Naming is you name something that, that exists that comes into existence. I don't have a name. I just am existence. So just say, I am, is here when they ask you. And the Old Testament word or the Hebrew word is Yahweh. And it's, it's a sacred name for the Jewish people. They would not uh, say that name, so they would come up with other names like Adonai or Elohim or Jehovah. And they would say that, those words and say, instead of saying God's holy name, Yahweh. And here Jesus takes God's holy name and he applies it to himself. He he looks at this Jewish crowd and he says, I am. Not not I was not I will be, but but I'm uncaused. I'm self-existent. I'm outside of time and creation. I I, I don't I I don't exist. I am existence. Your very existence is being held together by my existence. I don't have a beginning. And so when Jesus is lying in the manger, nobody could have guessed this was I am. That he had a different beginning than Jesus in the manger. And everybody knows what he's saying because they go and pick up stones. And what are they planning on doing? They're going to stone him. Because if you go back in the Old Testament, if somebody claims to be God, if somebody blasphemes, there's a punishment for that. And it is stoning. So everybody's aware of what's happening. And I want you to be sure that at this particular moment, nobody walked away from this lecture on the Temple Mount and said, well, I don't know. He had some good things to say. <laughs> no, nobody thought he was a good teacher. Imagine just for a moment going to a lecture on the campus of UNCW. Somebody's coming to town. You've heard something about them. They've done some things that get you there. You go to the ballroom there. You sit. You have some anticipation that The the person gets up. The keynote speaker gets up and he says, well, you know, I, I'm glad you're here this morning. I just want you to know that I have no beginning." I created the world. I'm, I'm holding your molecules together even as we speak. In fact, if you would just want to refer to me as God, that'd be perfectly okay with me. You wouldn't walk out and say, God, I've got some great notes from that guy. He's got some neat illustrations. He ought to write a book. You couldn't but have one of two reactions. You'd have to believe the guy was who he was, or you'd have to say, I think he's a nut. And you wouldn't just sort of stroll away, you'd run away and you wouldn't want any of your friends to come in contact with a nut like that unless the nut was really God. And so it's impossible when you look at Jesus to be forced into any other position other than he's just a nutcase or he's God. There's no neutral position and we see that all the way through when we read the book of John. You see, when you, you come face to face with Jesus, even Jesus in the manger, there's really just two reactions. You can have the reaction that King Herod had. King Herod wants to be king. And when that kingship gets threatened, what does he decide to do? We've got to put to death anything that threatens my sovereignty. I can't deal with anything that threatens my free will, my free choice, and my kingship over myself. Or you come as the wise men and you fall at his feet and worship. Every chapter of John presses the reader to answer the question, who do you say that he is? If you have to be king... If you have to be self-sovereign, when you come to Jesus, you're going to get rid of him. If you can fall on your knees and say, no, this is the king, I'm not the king. Then you can fall and you can find that this Jesus falls down with you and picks you up and brings you home to eternal life. Who do you say that Jesus is? Let's pray together.